Hey everyone, Reese here. Welcome back to WSL Pure One Ocean. I am really excited to share this week's episode. This week we talk a lot about connection. And on so many levels, our, our guest this week recognizes these connections we have to physical places, to the environment, and to one another. This week we're speaking with Dr. Cliff Capono. In this episode, we've ID'd Cliff as a surfer, a scientist, and a storyteller. But more accurately, he's a sponsored professional free surfer. He has a PhD in molecular chemistry uh, from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, no less. Uh, he's a filmmaker producing short films and series exploring the intersection of surf, science, art, and the environment. And that's not even the half of it. If you were to go to cliffcapono.com news, there's a ton more there. He's a busy guy. But at the end of the day, he's also just Cliff. He's a very kind, very humble, very present human being. I feel really, really fortunate to be able to call Cliff a friend. And honestly, I have so much respect and admiration for Cliff that I'm worried this intro won't even give him his just due. But I also want to get to the episode because you're here to listen to Cliff, not me. So I'll shut up and get to the episode in which we talk about the way that Cliff views science and culture as one and the same how he always finds subtle nuances of an issue, and how his indigenous Hawaiian knowledge and his experience in conventional science show that we are all connected. And that's pretty topical, because this coming Sunday, actually, is a UN holiday. It's the International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. And that's important, because we can't talk about saving the ocean or protecting the planet without recognizing, including, and supporting our indigenous populations around the world. So we're stoked to have Cliff on the show, and we're stoked that our friends at Hydroflask are supporting this episode. Cliff's actually an ambassador for Hydroflask's Refill for Good campaign, and it's rad that they support people like Cliff who are working to make positive environmental change. So thank you, Hydro, for the support. All right, I'm stoked in this episode. I'm going to stop talking. Let's get to it with our friend Cliff Capono. Cliff, great to reconnect, man. Good to see your face. Same, Radaris. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> good, good. Just uh, taking some much-needed time to rest on the Big Island. I think yeah. it's been a pretty hectic few years of moving about, and and you know, I think this is the longest I've been home in maybe like ten years. So, I'm I'm stoked. It seems to be a common theme among a lot of the people I'm talking to. It's like This is the longest I've been in one place in years. And, and you particularly, I mean, you have been around the world uh, it, with both surfing and pursuing science and, you know, studying over here in California for a while. Um, you know, you've been all over the place. So uh, I can imagine it must be nice to kind of be settled. Yeah. And it's good to be able to kind of just notice like the seasonal changes uh, that the season changed. I caught kind of the tail end of the winter and then it moved into the spring and now we're moving into the summer. And I, I kind of miss being able to just see just those kind of subtleties in the environment that change, you know, from certain plants flowering to certain birds migrating and then leaving the whales, actually like seeing the last whale leave for the whole you know year. It's kind of a, a special thing where when I'm kind of just jamming around, I don't really notice it too much. I just, oh, the whales are here, the whales are gone, or oh, this bird is here, then it's gone. And, and it was able, it was cool to see like a bunch of them and then down to the last few and then kind of be like, hey, you're that like last trailer straggler that 
moves on and hopefully we see them next year so it's it's been pretty cool yeah to be at home and see that it's nice to connect to your place i mean i've had i feel like since i've been working from home consistently i now notice like oh there's that family of crows like they come at the same time every day to the same tree you know i think back to you know growing up where i grew up on cape cod like my dad could tell you which foghorn was which and we knew which you know mm. oh the ships are here because they're going after the squid and then oh the squid boats are gone like you're just in touch with the seasons in the place yeah. and, and, um it's just nice to kind of actually be settled and be in touch with place instead of just yeah. being floating but like to to first ground us in a place i don't like to try to intro people too much i always like people to be able to say who they are in their own words so you know in cliff's words who who is Cliff Capone? I can call you a PhD scientist, surfer, whatever, but like, who are you? And I know you're going to give me a kind of a smart ass response off the bat. <laughs> human. <laughs> there you Capone go. See? Is human. <laughs> yeah, there's Cliff yeah. the human, but uh, you know, you're you're from you're from the Big Island, yeah. Yeah, I'm from the Big Island, uh, and I I moved back home uh, in the end of 2018. Uh, from a six-year stint in San Diego, California, where I was finishing up my graduate studies in chemistry at UCSD and also did a program uh, at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Meanwhile, really just getting exposed to a lot of new opportunities in surfing. Uh, Like I said, I come from Hilo, which is a really small town. There's not very much of a surf industry surf culture is alive and thriving but in terms of surf industry it's definitely on the other islands so going to southern california where the industry is pretty intense i think it it just allowed me to just engage and participate with people who are facilitators of conversations around professional surfing and it helped me just learn so much and really really fortunate to now be a part of that conversation so so that's interesting so i don't know the the timeline of when you picked up sponsors because you're sponsored by a number of of brands in the space and are like a sponsored free surfer but you also are phd like very legit chemist and do some incredible research which i want to get to but it was actually what it was coming here to the U.S., uh, to the mainland, that essentially exposed you to sponsorship? Yeah. I, I, so I didn't, like, uh, I mean, in Hawaii, it's so competitive. And really the focus, I would say, is around the North Shore. And that's, you know, we all know that's the proving ground. That's where the industry descends for six weeks out of the year through the contest. And it's um the world descends here. And sometimes it's the more, or it's the the hottest story that makes the headlines and it's you know very difficult for a kid from a rural town on the most eastern island to create enough noise you know especially where we grew up we don't like to make a lot of noise we just try to let our our surfing do the talking which that's that's a, a that's the hard part how do you demonstrate your ability without seeming like you're not being humble and it's it's a it's a funny yeah. line to balance but by going to california there's a lot more i feel opportunity outside of just a contest or outside of one wave i, I think there's some key waves uh, in california and i was fortunate to be living right above 
some of the waves in San Diego that are most noticeable and being there and then also moving up the coast, not moving, but just traveling up the coast and surfing some of these famous waves that I grew up looking in the magazines or, you know, in the surf films, you know, places like, I mean, they don't have to be getting crazy like Trestles or Malibu yeah. and then yeah. all the way up to, I mean, Half Moon Bay and um, the whole gamut of waves and the, the waves that no one talks about, or, I mean, they, people know that we're not supposed to talk about being able to experience <laughs> waves like, like that. It just, it, it was crazy. The, the amount of waves within a day's drive where in Hawaii, we have a lot of waves, but it's almost like people only really care about pipelines. So, you know, that's yeah. that. So, so that's fascinating because, you know, I feel like I first heard of you and discovered you on the internet or whatever um, around your surfer microbiome project. Like that's when I remember mm -hmm. learning of you. I didn't learn of you because yeah. you were a surfer. I learned of you because you're doing mm -hmm. interesting research. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And I was like, oh, and it's a surfer. And oh, that's cool too. Um, so I don't know, maybe you want to, maybe let's start there. Because at this point now, you and I have so much overlap with the number of groups with which we partner and work with from yeah. Surf Rider to Save the Waves to like all, all these, it feels like, how did we not know about each other? Um, but I remember when I first kind of discovered you, I was like, wait, what, what is this all about? And it was fascinating to me learning about your research um, and understanding, you know, what my microbiome looks like is based on where I surf. So maybe like a quick one on, cause I don't think we have a, a time for the full. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, basically it was, um, like I said, lifelong surfer, love the ocean moving up to San Diego to pursue education just on the, on the, you know, backstory on that. I just didn't know if I felt a big responsibility to try to improve my community and for myself, I used surfing growing up to elevate my status in my community. But it got to a point where I just didn't believe in myself enough to think that surfing alone could improve my community. So I seen education was actually a way where more people felt empowered to know that there was someone from our community that could get a PhD. So that's what I, I chose. I made that. And it wasn't an easy decision because I, among my peers, a few of them did go to the world tour. Um, a, a lot of them won big you know, international competitions and were still good friends. And I just didn't think that I could do that. And I was like, what can I do? I can go to school to help my community. And when I went to um, UCSD, I was studying coral reef and that was my main focus. And I ended up having a scholarship to study the coral reef for the first three years of my graduate program. But it came to a point where I couldn't get another grant studying coral reef. Coral reef conservation and research is highly competitive. People are asking, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of individuals trying to get money to study the ocean. And I, I didn't get the grants that I needed. So in order to continue the type of research I want to do, I had to think about another organism that no one else was studying. You know, science is very much about being the first or the only unique research topic. Right. And I just kind of by default looked at something that I was just as passionate about. And it felt a little selfish, but I was like, I'm going to study how surfers are connected to the ocean. And for 
some reason there was enough support within the the academic field to say okay what's your question and that question was how do surfers relate to each other on a molecular level and also how do they connect to the ocean on a molecular level and these are things that are intuitive to us we feel like oh yeah i feel connected to another surfer i feel connected to the ocean but there just wasn't enough empirical evidence to support this type of thinking and i was awarded a, a scholar a, a grant to go out and investigate this and how i did that was i traveled to like <laughs> morocco and ireland and <laughs> england and you know all california throughout california back home and yeah. And I just sampled surfers and I looked at the different bacteria, the DNA, and also the chemistry that exists on and inside of them to see if I can find any type of molecular signature that connect everyone. And, and did I, you? Mean, I found a few. Yeah, I found a few. Like I, I was looking at um, using a different type of um, profiling techniques. We use a tool called mass spectrometry and also DNA sequencing to investigate what do these molecular signatures look like and then using different statistics we're able to find trends in the data or you know these key findings that demonstrate we are connected and, and that's what i found i found that on a molecular level the types of bacteria that exists on a, a surfer um, are common if they frequent the ocean enough um, and statistically I was just going to say, so to like explain it in layperson terms, um, surfers who surf the same break will have more in common on a molecular level than um, maybe with like a family member or something. So say I surf and my partner doesn't, um, but I'm going to have at the molecular level a lot of things in common with the other people who surf the same places that I do more so than my partner with whom I live or my, or my sibling with, with whom I share DNA. Is that a fair summary or did I just butcher that? <laughs> you're, you're more molecularly related to someone in Morocco that surfs than you are to someone who doesn't surf that lives down your street. So it's not even like surf the same break. It's like surfers no. because we're in the yeah. ocean. Yes. That we Whoa. we have i just got chills know. thinking i didn't realize it was about internationally i thought it was just if you're surfing the same break then you get really the similar molecular whoa that just tripped no, me out <laughs> when we when we hear the ocean connects us it's on a dna level you know and it may not be altering well there's no evidence yet to support that it alters our dna the human dna sure but this microbiome that we talk about the human organism isn't just human cells. We're starting to recognize that the human organism is made up of human cells alongside symbiotic bacteria and fungus and protists and even viruses. That that's what makes an individual truly unique. And that entire composition of a surfer from San Diego is more related to a surfer in Southern Morocco and someone who lives in Texas. Well, maybe not Texas now. I don't know because they got the wave pools, but I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to qualify what yeah, makes a surfer, right? Like yeah. <laughs> saltwater surfers versus freshwater maybe. Um, yeah. That's so, fascinating, but, man. Yeah. It was an incredible uh, finding, I would say. And um, one of the most interesting findings is that the more you frequent the ocean, the more abundant these signatures are, which 
you know, means like in science, they say that's a dose dependent response, meaning the higher exposure, the more of it you have. So if you want more of this connecting signature, then you got to get more into the ocean. And we would be foolish to think that this is only about the ocean, that this doesn't happen in the mountains or in the forest or in the deserts. You know, our connection to nature is truly a two-way street. And these are some of the, you know, empirical evidence and datas that can and data that can show us just how intricately connected we are to the natural environment. It's so rad, man. That's so cool. I, I, this might be a tangent, and uh, listeners, uh, forgive me if we go too far down this um, rabbit hole. But have you read up much on the eDNA uh -huh. stuff? Um, you know, the ability to kind of like test DNA in the water just with like a, a yes. sample. And basically like if you're swimming around, you can like dolphin DNA is off the coast just in the water. And is mm -hmm. that, do you think that there's a something there as well? Like not, I'm not suggesting we're all part dolphin or whale or whatever DNA is floating around in our surf breaks, but at the same time, I don't know. So I don't know. Like are we is, part, this is, you know, this is like the kicker in the whole thing that is, is, you know, pretty, funny that you should mention this is because the only other um, studies when I'm looking through the literature, when I find these signatures, I look, okay, this is this type of bacteria that comes from the ocean. This isn't the most abundant bacteria. So it's not just like you go into the ocean and it just falls on top of you and that's why it's there. There's a signature that is a specific bacteria that lives in the ocean. And the only other literature that I find that people are studying very much this type of bacteria because it's mostly abundant on them too, is whales, dolphins, and seals. So from a molecular level or from this microbiome level, not only are you more connected to the Southern Moroccan, but you're more connected to flipper in the ocean. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, and, and these, these are truly, I feel the, this is the hidden message in the surfer biome project. It's not to, you know, of course, going on on this incredible surf trip for my studies was amazing. I met so much people and got so many opportunities, but it's to demonstrate that the histories that many indigenous cultures believe to be true is actually relevant and understandable today to the mass that you don't have to identify as an indigenous person to acknowledge that the science suggests you have a connection to someone more than just your family or your kid or your mom or your dad. You have a, a, a biological connection to the environment and the organisms that live in it. And that's what the Surfer Biome Project truly um, demonstrates in my mind is that we are our environments. We, are, we have this deep connection from our indigenous perspectives. And if you don't identify as an indigenous person, then here's a new story. Here's your indigenous story, person who doesn't feel they have a home. This is the planetary species story that we are all connected on a molecular level. That's that is so powerful, Cliff. Uh, and you could not have made uh, a better segue into another topic I wanted to talk about. But um, I had questions along this topic, but I also want to talk about it. Is like, how much do you think your indigenous connection and you know history and ancestral connection to your place and and the ocean um how much do you think that's influenced 
your science work and and you know then how do you work those things together because it's funny because I, I was like preparing for this conversation which is funny because we're buddies and i was like i'm just going to catch up with cliff and then i was like no i should actually like prepare and i was like oh cliff does a great job of balancing this like science with indigenous thing and then i went well, wait actually balance is the wrong word because balance presupposes that the two things are on an opposite side of a fulcrum right Mm-hmm. And they're not, I don't think they are. And, or at least I don't think that's what you do. If anything, you leverage your ancestral knowledge um, to make your science stronger and vice versa. You put them on the same side and you go together. These things are really powerful. I don't know. Does that seem like a fair yeah, characterization? Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. I feel that um, both science and culture are, are one and the same. And it's just a, uh, a misunderstanding, a miscommunication between people of opposing perspectives. I I believe that once we identify the differences between these two perspectives, we can marginalize those differences in order to move forward with a, a similar goal. And that's that's how I always seen it. I I, I don't feel that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, what what is science really? You know, if you Wikipedia, it, it's basically trying to understand where we fit among the universe and using different ideas as ways to explain it. And the ideas are tested for us to determine whether they are kind of accurate or inaccurate. So the difference between, I feel, a lot of conventional science, I would say today, is that conventional science, this idea of making an observation asking a question, testing and creating a theory, that's on the order of say months to maybe years. Whereas indigenous science and more traditional science, it's over centuries. That's the time scale of the experiment. So the outcome, I believe from an indigenous science perspective is much more grounded in truth because it's had generations to test whether it's accurate or inaccurate rather than a lot of these conventional scientific methods, which have only been around, you know, in the last 200 to 300 years, it's, it's a very shortened time scale. And when we haste into a, a decision, oftentimes we might arrive at inaccuracies. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I, I guess, um, maybe where it broke down and and I don't know, and I'm not suggesting that this is correct or anything, but I feel like religion is another portion of this whole conversation. Right. And religion in the sort of modern man, Western world, somehow there was like science and religion. Right. But like, mm-hmm. because white people basically, you know, took over and ruined a lot of things uh, <laughs> and then kind of bucketed all indigenous stuff just as like all indigenous stuff is over here and didn't take the time to understand indigenous knowledge of a place and an explanation for how things work and ecosystems and our connection to them. It was just lumped in with these people think that there are some sacred gods and like that doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. And so mm-hmm. they don't know anything and let's not include them in the discussion in the science going forward. I don't know. Does that seem like a fair characterization? Oh, I mean, totally. And you're going to we're going to look back in you know, 200 years and there when we're the ancestors, some culture is going to be like, oh, their people's ancestors used to walk around and pray to a little s- s- rectangle 
being made out of you know rare earths they prayed to these little rocks that they found in the the bottom of the ocean or yeah. they used to mine it out of the mountains and all of that was so important to actually them surviving they were so silly that they ripped out what they needed to survive in order to just pray and talk to themselves and to just stare and meditate like who's going to look silly in 200 years from now if we're even around you know what i mean so it's like it's only human to judge to judge so i don't i try to give them benefit of the doubt you know when you think about maybe even in my own culture these first europeans that arrived onto the hawaiian shores they're trying to communicate to these people and and i would just put myself in my ancestors situation where if someone came and they're like what are you doing and i'm trying to figure out what even those words mean like what am i doing i'm gonna go fish like well why are you just standing on the beach it's like oh i'm I guess I'm waiting for the ocean to tell me it's okay. You know, while I'm waiting for waves, timing the sets, watching the wind, seeing where the birds are flying. They're like, the ocean's talking to you? I'm like, "Uh, yeah. Like, oh, would you say you're like praying to it? Like, what's praying? Yeah. Uh, you, you talk to the thing and it talks to you. You're like, oh, yeah, fully. I pray to the ocean. They're like, oh, pagan. Like, you're you're the devil, you know? So, it's just these misunderstandings that probably resulted in this um, marginalization of a, of a way of life. Which is insane because um, indigenous people represent some, I think it's close to 500 million people on the planet and some, you know, 7,000 languages, I believe. And I'm pulling these numbers from the United Nations. Um, and, I, and I'm citing that because, uh, you know, this episode is going to go live on the 6th and on August 9th is the inter- it's the UN's International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples, which recognizes um, the historical sort of, um, you know, uh, mistreatment and um, hmm. lack of inclusion in so much of our modern way of life. Um, hmm. And some of that stems from, you know, those first, you know, first landings and first interactions and being deemed pagan and saying, okay, you're over here and we split everything up to modern day where you still have indigenous cultures who are, you know, not mm. given the respect that they need. And, um, I think now more than ever, it's imperative that we are inclusive in our, in the ways in which we, we operate going forward. And so, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to highlight that, that I think sometimes it's, it feels like every day has a day or every day is like 10 different days. You're like, today is like world turtle day. It's also like, you know, octopus yeah. day and da da da. But like, <laughs> man, one day a year to recognize indigenous people, it seems a little silly. Um, we should be doing it as much as possible and we should be, you know, including indigenous land acknowledgements wherever we can and, and trying to just understand that history. Um, so I I thought it was important to bring up and I think you've, you've done some of this work or I've seen you do some of this work and some of the events that you participate in and the way that you represent Hawaii and the way that you speak about it. I don't know. Is, Is that, it feels like it's a thing for you. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and like I mean, maybe I you just say, don't have a choice. <laughs> I definitely don't have a, a choice. I feel, I feel that I don't, but I know I do. Uh, it just feels that way. But I would challenge people on World Indigenous Day to find their indigeneity, because at one point we all were indigenous people to someone, you know. And the indigenous, the people who identify as indigenous, they celebrate being indigenous every day, every moment, you know. And that I know that to be true. These days not to celebrate us i would like to think about it's it's celebrating the opportunity for those to find their roots and i was in ireland in lahinch and i was on an organic farm with fergal smith 
Um, incredible surfer, one of the world's best surfers who left professional surfing to choose to reduce his carbon footprint uh, and provide food for his community in Ireland. And he, he had incredible sponsors. He had the cover of Surfer Magazine, surfed in Tahiti, Hawaii, all, all along, pioneered some of these incredible waves in Ireland. And I was staying there while I was doing the Surfer Biome project. And one day we were planting garlic in the fields. And as we're bearing it, I, I said, oh, this is the first time I did I planted garlic. It's It's not that hard. And he said, yeah, this is how we've been doing it for thousands of years. And up until then, like the only people I've ever heard say something like that were like Hawaiian people or people yeah. from the continent, you know, the, the native people from North America. I've never heard a blue eye, redhead, freckle, fair skin say, this is how we've been doing it for thousands of years. And I, I look back at him and it, it just those barriers of race and segregation, they, they just were like non-existent because at the end of the day, I respected his ability to know that he was indigenous to that part of the planet and he knew his stories. And there was an incredible level of respect that I felt that he was willing to share with me his ancestral knowledge to create food that I knew next season would help to feed people of Ireland. You know, it was just a real special moment. Yeah. So that's, that's my take on indigenous and, you know, place is a big, a big component to that, you know? Yeah. It's tough. I feel like, you know, and I hadn't planned to chat about this, but you know, I think a lot of people are recon reconciling with the way they were brought up and the history and the stories yeah. they were told and where their people were from and, you know, maybe what family members in the past acted in what ways. And, and cause we've all been forced mm -hmm. to really reflect on this. Um, in a way that many of us never have before. And when I say us, I mean, mostly white people, right? It's like, oh, wow, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. Like we we're having this discussion now. We should have been having it for years. And some people have been, but many haven't. And so now everyone's looking back and like my ancestry. So my mother's from the Azores, Portuguese, the islands, right? And we have, you know, our, our family goes back generations on the Portuguese side. And it's like, Portuguese, like we got a real bad problem with the whole slave trade. Like, I recognize that. Yeah. I've known that since I was yeah. a kid. And on the one hand, I'm proud of my Portuguese heritage and I'm proud of, you know, the way my mother has been a proud, you know, Portuguese citizen. I have Portuguese citizenship and I like, I'm, I'm proud of that sort of seafaring, you know, people. And, mm -hmm. um, my, my family back in the Azores had a pineapple farm and, um, I'm really proud of that. But on the other hand, I'm like, man, I really hope I don't dig up and find out that we were who the was ones working there we're running the boats yeah fields. or totally right like who was working on those fields or like were we yeah. ship you know and, and it's like oh you know but at the same time that i i feel like one thing i really respect about you and the way you approach a lot of things is that you always find the nuance in everything and we have to have that nuance like do, do, would that history if if that were my family history it's not that i know of but if it were does that make me a horrible person and unable to be a part of the movement now for better? And I would say no, because um, I want to be, I want to do good, right? Um, mm. And I feel like you do a good job of that nuance. And I guess maybe I'm thinking of like Mauna Kea, you know, the the 30 meter telescope, which was, mm -hmm. you know, meant to be planted right at the top of the mountain there on your home island. And I, I could see you getting caught in the middle of this and being like, well, I'm a scientist and like here, you know, Hey, we need science. We got to do research. Like, Hey, we got to support this thing. 
but on the flip side, it could be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm indigenous and I got to respect my people. And you, I feel like you ultimately landed there, but, but your whole thing was, we got to have the conversation. Like we got to figure mm-hmm. out how we do this together. And I don't know if that's a fair characterization of your position on that, but I always respect yeah. the way you find the nuance in, in all these issues and the way you represent that. I, I feel that it's a difficult conversation to have with people. So on the, on the premise, our culture is founded on inclusion. This aloha is a very inclusive um, ideology in our culture. And when we move away and we become exclusive, that's when things begin to fall apart. So a lot of times, rightfully so, I believe, there's intergenerational trauma that exists from this colonialization and marginalization of Native people here in Hawaii that make them feel that it's us versus the world. And I was in this perspective for a long time. And I slowly began to break down that thinking to recognize that that telescope goes on the mountain. That's not just a Hawaiian problem. That's a global problem because conservation land, designated federal conservation land will be developed. Pristine conservation, federally recognized land will be developed in the name of science. That's a very dangerous situation to have on many fronts. Is it okay to put something, a hospital that say would cure cancer, if we put that on half dome? That's the only place that we could do that. It's going to save people. It needs to be there. It's for humanity. Do we desecrate the spaces which have been designated as pristine? That It's a bigger issue. It's not Hawaiian. It's human. And yeah. once I started to have a conversation around this is a bigger issue that includes all of humanity, I, I believe it was easier for me to decipher what should be done. Yeah. Okay. And you're talking about setting precedents. Like what are the precedents that we set for the ways in which we'll exactly. treat the planet that we're connected to? And, you know, do we set a precedent that this is okay? And of course, arguments like these can be really simply reduced to, oh, it's science versus ancestral land. It's like, it's not just science. There's like economics there. There's a whole totally. lot. It's like, totally. yes, it's for science, but there's a whole lot there. Um, yeah. So it's, it's not it's, simple. Bo- both have been appropriated. Both science and culture has been appropriated to create this drama between two people while you know like i know there's never going to be a center that's going to be built on half dome to save cancer like i understand that but what (laughs) if there's a resource what if there are certain minerals and ores within that face that are critical to creating a vaccine for covid and whether people agree with that or not that that's the demand that's relevant in our times is it okay to just extract from that place yeah um I would argue, I would argue, no, if, if we, if there was enough thought to put into protecting these places, why are we going to begin to be taking from our reserves? You know what I'm saying? It goes, it goes back to the, the, the thinking that you mentioned before, which is the long-term thinking and having it, uh, you know, looking at our, our various baselines and thinking about, okay, we need this thing right now, but Mm -hmm. what new problem are we creating by doing this action now? Or yes. what other greater solution are we are we missing by acting in this way now? And I think about the ways in which we have gone, okay, cool. We got to get off fossil fuels. We need electric cars. That means we need batteries, which means we need minerals. So we got to dig up all the minerals. 
Yes, we yeah. need, you know, yes, but what problems are we creating by creating battles? I'm not saying we shouldn't be getting off of fossil fuels. I agree that that is the solution. That's the path we need to take, but let's be thoughtful in the ways in which we start to go down that new path, especially as, you know, these are our chances to kind of right the ship and set the right course. I mean, <laughs> like we, we spend so much time as, as a species just cleaning up after ourselves. And so wouldn't it yeah. be nice if we kind of took a very thoughtful course forward that is inclusive of that broader thinking of a place um, and how to build a sustainable future? I don't know. Um, maybe that's, that's the, maybe that's too much to ask. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's where technology, I feel that that's where technology can play a role. You know, technology is advancing the ability to perform. And, you know, right now, the technology is inhibiting us from advancing. So there's room to develop. And I think it just requires us to invest into these technologies that have the potential to do good. You know, it's not the answer right now. A lot of the brands that, you know, I work with, they're not there. I don't think any brand is quite there. But that there are divisions or entire, um, like the entire division of the, the brand, if they're moving towards finding out what is that new technology and they require the consumer to help push that technology, I, I'm on board with that. You know, I don't know all the answers and I don't know where we're going to go. But if there's an opportunity for me to engage in a conversation around developing positive technology to be a better environmental steward, I'm I'm on board with that. Yeah. And that brings us to another great topic, which is like you, you, you occupy this. It's such an interesting space, right? Like you are sponsored as a surfer, but you aren't just surfing. You're doing science, right? And so, and you're, and you're doing a lot of your science and a lot of your work is for conservation. I mean, you have spent time with native lake water, surf rider foundation, save the waves. You're an ambassador for WSL pure. Um, uh, who else am I missing there? I feel like it's sustainable coastlines. You hang with parlay, you hang with like you, you've been a part of so many groups and done so much good work. And so you, you are very generous with your time in this conservation space. And then on the brand side, you know, you're actually, you're really thoughtful and you're always very nuanced about how you approach the brands. And, and so I, you know, Full disclosure, we're really psyched to have Hydroflask supporting this episode. So they're one of them. So we're going to shout Hydroflask. But I just think it's cool the way that you, you know, have had to be thoughtful about that and the way that you phrase it, because we know that consumerism is a challenge to our existence on this planet and we traditionally overconsume. Um, but there are certain products that will help us not consume so rampantly um is that, is that fair and, and while we're at it i'm going to pull up the the hydro flask um campaign because you're a part of this thing yeah I, I think there's always a you know there's these opportunities where there are now brands out there and there's certain brands that are willing to support a lifestyle around you know conservation or being a steward you know and hydroflask is one of them which i'm very lucky to be a part of the ambassador team uh, especially in this refill for good campaign and you know when hydroflask first um, came to me explaining that they're expanding this ambassador team i didn't know if they were just asking for my um recommendations of people. I didn't even know they wanted me to be a part of this this team, you know, but 
you know, looking at. <laughs> it's like literally, hey, Cliff, we want you to join. And you're like, me? You want someone else? Yeah. No? This guy? There's so, I mean, there's so many incredible people out there that are doing amazing work that sometimes I even feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, but that they're willing to to launch these campaigns that are specifically catered to trying to understand and put a feeling of empowerment into the consumer or into this the everyday person. You know, I think that's pretty incredible and it's pretty awesome that there are brands out there like Hydroflask that are willing to take the time and invest in people to have a lifestyle of, like I said, stewardship. And that's, hopefully that becomes the, the new standard. Yeah, I, I I was so like, you know, Lakey and Ace and Paige have also been pure ambassadors, all, you know, professional mm-hmm. surfers on tour. Uh, they've all uh, they're all hydro ambassadors as well. And, and um, when I heard they were redoing this campaign, I was like, oh, OK, like, you know, we'll have the squad kind of thing. And then I saw the campaign page and I was like, wait, 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 wait. it's it's like Rutcliffe, but listed here, Dr. Cliff Capono, because this is you and your scientific, um, you know, professional uh, space, but then also, uh, Dr. Sarah Jean Royer, like she's incredible. She does some really mm-hmm. uh, incredible research. I've spoken with her as well. I don't know Laura, but I just, she's an educator and an activist. And I thought it was cool that they were picking out people who aren't just pro surfers with big followings. It's like, no, no, no. These are like the authentic people who are doing the work to understand our connection to the ocean, to understand, um, the connection of plastic pollution to the climate crisis and the way that it breaks down and emits methane. Mm. Um, and I thought it was awesome that they, 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 took that influence and then they also are making very specific recommendations of what people can do which is you know switch to a reusable bottle obvious one hydro we got it yes we've got the bottle as everyone knows i always have it but then like ditch the clamshell containers and stand up against single use straws and like to specifically call out other items which yeah is there more they could be doing sure but it's great that they are taking to specifically call out what people can do because i think sometimes brands yeah. will sit on the fence and they don't want to be seen as kind of too too active there and so i'm i'm stoked mm-hmm. that they're doing it and i thought it was rad that you were in there and i was like okay we gotta get cliff on the show <laughs> i wanted to, you've been on my list forever and then i was like all right hydro is gonna get behind this one because i'll be stoked that cliff's in yeah. well I, that, I mean that's cool too that these uh, these brands and these companies they have a, a pool in the this industry they have a pool in this kind of pop culture and if they're willing to demonstrate that they want to allocate resources to celebrating people who want to do these types of work or this type of work. I think that's it's a creative way to join the cause, you know, and, and it is scary for them. There's a lot of people who are climate change deniers and there's a lot of people who don't believe that the environment is a priority. And it's, again, it, I think it's, um, it's fair for them to think that way if they want to, you know, because some of these people maybe are living in marginalized communities. Maybe some of these people are below the poverty line where feeding their family is more important than ditching a straw. And really, who am I to judge? You know, it's more about seeing, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully these people will see that it's not just critical and vital to protect our environment. It's cool. And it's actually marketable and trendy. And it's something <laughs> that we all can, you know, aspire to to be. You know, no one wants to aspire to be like a shitty person. You know, and <laughs> where, do, where do we see ourselves, who we want to be? Yeah. It's a lot of times the media. The media shows us what we are, which has its negatives. But a lot of times sure. media and culture 
demonstrates and celebrates who everyone else should strive to be like. And if they're taking the time to push people who care about the planet, I think that's an awesome thing. Yeah. I want to pick up on one thing you said in there, which is, you know, thinking about a marginalized community an under-resourced community, uh, you know, um, um, environmental justice community and, and, and talking about, yeah, of course, like, I think there are a lot of these issues that people get pretty fired up about. And, um, if you have the means to skip plastic bags and skip straws and do that work and pay for the extra five cent fee and all those things, like you should do them. You shouldn't judge people who don't do them. But what's interesting is how those communities are, um, overly negatively affected by these things. Cause that's the irony of all this, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the, yeah. The under-resourced communities are going to be hit first and hit hardest by all of these issues, mm -hmm. whether it's plastic pollution that um, is all over their streets or in their environment because, you know, uh, there's no one, there are no resources to clean it up because exactly. it's pumped there or it's climate change. I mean, you look at Bangladesh right now. Bangladesh is literally underwater uh, as a result of climate from rising sea levels from these storms and everything. And they are getting hit so hard. And the average American emits 33 times more uh, carbon than your average Bangladeshi, you know? So like, and we're not feeling it because, you know, we're set here yeah. most of us in America. So that's the injustice that I think is really imperative that we start to think about the ways in which we uh, create solutions going forward. Um, but you also talked about being kind of like the models that we see in the media and, and obviously the media, we're not going to go down a whole media that's that's like a whole other series uh, that we can start we can co-host a whole series in the media but i do think media has changed right and we're all being influenced yes. in many different ways now um, whether you're getting mainstream media or news or whatever or social media and i think you talked about modeling and like that's what i see you as cliff is like you have become such this unique model um that's really different for kids who are growing up today and saying like oh man i can I can surf, I can still surf, but I can also pursue education or I can pursue science and I can also do these other things. And, and like, I don't know how intentional that is, but I think it's an incredible thing for people growing up today to see there's a different way to do it, um, to prioritize education and, um, you know, looking at the way that you still connect that all back to your community and trying to do better for your community. It's not a question. Yeah, I mean that's real. <laughs> that's real kind, kind of you, kind of you to say. And it's uh, and I would have to give credit to the people that support me. You know, the people at Visla, you know the you know the WSL, you know, and also the the media, Surfer Magazine, Surfer's Journal, um, Stab, you know, online. All these all these um, outlets are taking the time to to support. A conversation around not just the environment but you know indigenous perspective and an alternative in in surf culture which i hope continues because I, I feel that's what it really was grounded in you know surfing was really well at least in the the media side of things and the, the celebration of a lifestyle it's a it's a feeling it's a it's a it's that lifestyle that i believe we shouldn't have just this you know, homogenous perspective of surfing is only at the competition level, which competition is important. We need champions to celebrate. We need that. Um, it, it's in our, you know, our storytelling of being human, the champions that win the world titles. Like that's important. 
but there's also another part of it that you can still feel like a world champion without ever having to compete in a contest. You know, there's so many people that I'm sure feel like they won a contest when they just score perfect waves at Cardiff Reef or, you know, down at La Jolla Shores. These are, you know, how can we celebrate these type of, you know, wins? Because they're, they're competing on a whole nother level in life. They're not competing in a jersey. They're competing by having to wake up every day and, and crush their nine to five, come back to their family or, you know, they might be going through their own issues. And when they catch that wave, that feeling is real. Like no one can say that that's any less of a real feeling than when, you know, Italo wins, you know, it's that feeling of I've accomplished something that's important. And, and I feel that by brands supporting this culture, this lifestyle, the alternative thinking and just being in the ocean, it's really cool. And I hope, I hope it continues and I hope it only grows from here where it's going to become very common for a professional surfer to have advanced degrees or to be able to uh, create maybe not just contests for the kids, but maybe schools or hospitals, you know, like that would be insane to have these professional surfers also have opportunities in taking care of their community and on a pretty massive level. You know, I, I've noticed a lot of the Olympians, the Olympics got canceled and we have these Olympians that are registered nurses or doctors or, you know, activists sure. where they're because they're not competing in the Olympics this summer or this uh, summer, they're taking that time and they're joining movements, you know, these activisms, they're joining the hospitals to fight COVID. It's like, these are like the best athletes in the world in these other sports. Hopefully surfing will, will do the same shortly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, that resonates for sure. I mean, that's part of the reason I took this opportunity to come here. So like, Oh, like we get to use surfing to do good things. Awesome. Mm. Like, yeah. great. Um, sign me up. Cause surfing's already rad, but now we get to go do environmental stuff and try to give back. And, and so we're, I mean, we're still just, getting started like i feel like you know we've done a bunch but um there's still so much more we can do and I, I get inspired hearing you talk about it i also feel inspired because um you make me feel like if i make one wave at my local breakwater in two foot slop that i get to feel like a world <laughs> champion too you 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 gave me permission to, to celebrate <laughs> so if i can make a you wave can claim it Just claim i'm gonna it. claim so hard Double the next fist. time i get to surf it's been so flat and so weak here lately and I have barely surfed and I'm going to, I'm going to hardcore claim whatever I surf next. <laughs> just have whatever flag you guys fly in Cape Cod, have that thing in your car and just run to your car after you get a wave and just hold it up. Like, oh no, it's a Cape Cod guy claiming the, his two footer again. Um, I love it, man. You, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned in there, uh, surfers having advanced degrees and, I did have a couple questions um, from some of the teammates who were like, oh, you're talking on a cliff, like here's one. And um, so one of them was, and this comes from Dave Proden, he's the host of the lineup with Dave Proden. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, he said, are you the best surfer in history to hold a PhD? No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, and I'll go through, I'll go through it for sure. There, I mean, it starts just from the, my limited um, inspirations that I have. There's um, Clyde Eichel, he graduated from University of Hawaii. He won the Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational okay. uh, the year okay. that they started. There's also strong, strong number one. 
<laughs> Ricky Grigg, he got his PhD from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Okay. Uh, 30 years old, won the Duke Honomoku Invitation on Sunset Beach. Okay. Uh, you got Sarah Gerhardt, who was the first woman to surf Mavericks. Uh, she also is a professor of chemistry. She reps. Up in uh, Santa Cruz, California. Um, now you have the young younger crop. You have people like Eski Britton, who holds a PhD in environmental science, who's also a postdoc setting. Um, social work and the, our social connection to the oceans across the planet. Yoni Klein, medical doctor from Israel uh, that is also on Billabong as a free surfer. Right. Um, and this guy, uh, Max Weston, he's a longboarder from Australia. I think he's ranked number 20 or something on the World Longboard Tour, uh, who also just got his PhD in nanoengineering in Australia. So they're there. You had that list very at the top of your mind. Like, have you been asked that question before or what? I just, I just think about like, I'm not the only, I'm not the only one, you know, there's, there's better surfers. Um, and I just, I'm lucky. I feel that I'm, I have, um, people in my corner, you know, like I said, you know, people like Visla and Channel Islands, Hydro Flask, and it's just, it feels really good to to know that those people not only support some of the best surfers of all time, but they also want to support this conversation, which is really an honor. Very cool. Dave argued pretty hard that he thought it was you. He thinks you you ripped the hardest, but the you know Clyde went in the eddy. That's 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 a salt. Uncle Clyde is legit. Yeah. Um, a question I had, but a question also um, uh, Tim had was, "What's your next scientific endeavor?" We have—I mean, we haven't even talked talk about the Mega Lab yet, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, what what are you working on? Is the Surfer Biome Project going to kind of keep going? I know that you've been working on some coral stuff with like three D um, modeling, basically, or mapping, and so like, yeah. what's what's next? Yeah. So for for the next part of it is um, I really love to ask these scientific questions about the environment and ourselves really i'm just trying to understand how do humans interact with nature and how do we um, have conversations scientific conversations and cultural conversations around that so the surfer biome was a nice segue into that a nice introduction Um, in hilo uh, i do my science research in a lab at the university of hawaii called the mega lab and what this place it it was started by this really really cool guy named john burns he's a surfer skater what a a great description he's a really cool guy (laughs) he's super cool like he's like first time i met him he had like a ramp at his house and he was just skating and i found out he's like one of the best coral researchers on the planet and whoa he he was the one who created the methods to model coral reef using cameras like regular cameras that we would use every point and shoots even or gopros and what the Megalab is trying to do is trying to map the world's oceans in 3D. And there's these many other projects that have been doing it as, uh, alongside him. People at Scripps are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, P- Google has been doing it. The, um, the Caitlin Seaview project. There's a bunch of these projects out there trying to map. What separates the Megalab, I think, from uh, many other scientific endeavors is that Megalab likes to exist on the interface between science and art. Because, you know, at the, the Megalab, John believes both science and art 
are about creativity. And I think that's, we both agree that that's very important in finding solutions in today's changing world. We have to be creative. We have to create new ways of navigating the, the issues that we're facing. Well, it makes me think of our good friend, Ethan, right? Ethan Estes, who mm, yes. um, he was on the podcast, I think episode two. Um, and, you know, Ethan talks about meeting people where they're at and art enables people to enter a conversation in a different way. Like when I see someone in a lab coat and a bunch of gear that I don't know how to use and or I get presented with some chart that is super deep or even when I try to read an abstract of a paper like new mm -hmm. research will come out and you know my wannabe scientist brain is like all right let me jump in here and I get in and before I know it, I'm like what does that mean what's the science language but when you have art it's like oh I can access this subject totally. from whatever point I'm at and Ethan I, I, I always love that that you meet people where you're at and I mean there are a lot of people who say that but you know Ethan was talking about that and relative to the golf ball wave and to the, the plastic yeah. pipeline and the way he like creates waves that people can stand in to see trash. And you're like, wait, how does this solve the problem? But yeah. when people get to go like, wait a second, how many golf balls are there in, in the water, in the ocean from what, that, wait, what? And they're all made of plastic and what, what, you know, and before you know it, they're, they're hooked on the, the facts and the figures, but it was the art that caught their eye and brought them into the conversation. So I think that's really cool. And Ethan's a legit scientist from oh, like sure. Stanford train. Like yeah. he's gnarly, gnarly scientist. So that he's, he's taking science and art and, and he's definitely an inspiration for us at the mega lab. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm hoping to do and, and look at how coral reef really, um, we, we have to see it to really believe that it's doing something. I think that's the first step. And there's way, there's a reef just off the waves here in my island that people don't really know about. You know, a few of the fisher yeah. people and the, the divers, they go out, they know about these reefs. But the surfers, they, they don't even think that there we have these commanding reefs. It's these brilliant gardens of coral that are just outside of the waves, like literally underneath the waves. And they're so resilient that as we see these mass coral bleaching events in the Maldives, in Tahiti, um, throughout you know, the Indian Ocean, there's there's reefs that are thriving here in the Hawaiian Islands that if we don't know they're there, we run the risk of losing them to development or agriculture or you know, tourism. Like I think if we know they're there, that's the first step. And that's what I'm doing now at the Mega Lab is not only are the places that I try to travel to to surf, I hope to create these uh, digital inventories, these this archiving of what our environment looks like before it changes. And hopefully when I catalog all these reefs, they get better when I come back in you know, 10 years. You know, that's the goal. And hopefully it's not the other way around where those become the last images of a, a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, it's, um, I think that's so important. I mean, you know, I've talked about shifting baselines here a bunch of times. Um, you know, there was recently, I think, a study or I came across it and it was talking about how an entire generation of coral reef researchers um, from a Florida area have never seen a, a cropera. Is that the correct Latin yeah, term? Yeah. They've never yeah. seen one in the wild or something. And so mm. it's like like their expectations of what normal is 
is like, yeah, these things, yeah. we grow them in labs or in captivity and then we try to put them in the wild. But we can't like discover, you know, because they've just never seen them. It's the same thing mm -hmm. with, you know, I'm from Cape Cod, which was named for the abundant <laughs> Atlantic codfish, which is no longer to be found anywhere. Wow. Right. The baseline is just yeah. completely shifted. Um, so it's super important that we document those things. Um, I want to start, I want to try to wrap it up and, uh, cause I, I know we're both in rooms without AC and the windows closed and it's hot. <laughs> um, this is my final question. If you could take anyone surfing, uh, anywhere in the world, where would you go? Who would you take with you? And what would you talk about? Hmm. We'll, we'll say someone alive, but it can be alive or dead. It's like, this is your chance to yeah. have a really important conversation with someone else. Um, um, I think you would be with Duke Kahanamoku. Ooh. I would, I would love to talk to him about that wave that he caught. That's been celebrated in our stories for so long, over a mile long, um, in Waikiki, you know, to, to ask him what did the reefs look like before they were dredged for the longliners and the importing of our goods and services. What did Waikiki look like as we were um, banned from, from visiting when you know, he was born in the kingdom? You know, what, what, was that, what was that like for him to see our queen fight for our sovereignty amongst the colonization, uh, amongst the world wars, uh, him having to go and uh, swim for the American surf team, winning medals for America. Um, and to ask him this image that people celebrate, how does he feel about the image that is being told his story by people who aren't from Hawaii? I think that's what right now I, I would love to have a conversation in and just feel that mana that he has. I like I have chills for like the 10th time this conversation cliff. Um, that's one of the best answers we've had on that question. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and you, I mean, you know, I didn't plan to talk about this too in depth, but you did, you were in a project with save the waves about Duke and about his historic trip to California for the first time. What was that like? Maybe describe it real quick. And yeah, that, that, um, that was actually, um, the first time surfing was documented outside of Hawaii, it was uh, in the mid or the late 1800s. And it wasn't, it wasn't actually Duke Hanamoku, it was um, Jonah Kuhio. Oh, and, okay. Uh, they're, they're the Pi'ikoi brothers. So it's three brothers that went up to San Mateo military school to learn the ways of the West as the kingdom was um, being threatened to be taken over and the king of Hawaii at the time sent 18 children across the world to learn art, military, science, medicine, and all these different things to come back to Hawaii in order to demonstrate that we have a very nice understanding of globalization. Um, and as these three brothers were at San Mateo military school, they went to the coast during the summers to enjoy the ocean. and. They lived right next to a redwood mill and they milled out these uh, olo boards. Uh, they're 16, 18 foot, 250 pound surfboards that were massive uh, yeah. reserved for the kings. Yeah, they, they were nobles. So they, they shaped what they believe was appropriate for their ranking. And they floated down the river and they ended up catching waves at 
the San Lorenzo River mouth in Santa Cruz, California. And it just so happened to be during a swimming exhibition where there was journalists there who recorded there's these Hawaiian princes who are doing surf swimming, riding waves back and forth in the middle of the swimming competition. So it, um, we went up, me, uh, myself, uh, Chad Jackson, who's a Hawaiian who lives in uh, Central California, and Noe Kolukukui, who lives in Santa Cruz. We had uh, replicates that Bob Pearson shaped uh, up in Santa Cruz, and we reenacted that historical moment of the three brothers surfing on these these boards and they're super heavy and it was freezing cold in springtime in santa cruz and we were only wearing singlets so it was very hard to to get some quality rides but we we achieved that um that objective i guess and when you know riding those boards and and feeling that that moment that you know you know, over a hundred years ago, that same thing happened in this foreign place. Yeah, it it felt it, it felt surreal to know that um, we we were there before, and you know, it, we're hopefully we'll we'll still be here. I'm I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that a hundred years from now, <laughs> there's gonna be some kids doing the same thing. So yeah, it was a real incredible experience that saved the wave. Um, put on yeah that's awesome um i i feel like it's cool that you got to have that connection to what that traditional version of the sport is or was or that one you know version of it and and i mean you're known for also surfing alayas and all sorts of different craft and connecting back to kind of the roots of the sport which is so cool but i still the duke answer is solid and i just feel like um I would, I would love to, if you do happen to hang with Duke, can I give you a zoom recorder and will you record it for a podcast? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Um, Cliff, anything else you want to share with our listeners or the world? Not that everybody in the world listens, uh, but our listeners, I'll stay, I'll stay there. Yeah. Just, I mean, thanks for having me. It's like always great to catch up and hopefully some people, uh, listen to, more than just a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, we went long. We went long on this episode. But listen, it's good, man. Um, it it is always a pleasure to catch up with you, and I have uh, tremendous like love and respect for what you do. Um, and I am sad that I'm not seeing you uh, anytime soon because of quarantine. But at the same time, I'm stoked that you're like settled in in your place. When we caught up last time, you just seemed so mellow and chill and everything was good like your your energy was just really solid because you're like your hands are in the ground your feet are in the soil and um it's good man thanks bro appreciate you love you too bro and hopefully we'll catch up sooner than later yeah man sounds good okay bro i know cliff wouldn't take me seriously on this but i feel like he honestly is the modern embodiment of duke or at least is expressing that deeper connection to the sport of surfing, to his community, to the ocean, through his work, through his platform, and all for the better. Cliff's a role model in so many ways. And again, I just want to say thanks to Cliff for joining us, for being an ambassador for WSL Pure, and being an ambassador for the ocean. I mean, he's engaged in so many different nonprofit groups and doing so much environmental work that it's it's truly impressive and i'm glad to know that cliff exists in the world mahalo brother cliff
Again, I want to say thanks to Hydro Flask for supporting the show. Check out their hashtag refill for good campaign. It's awesome. Remember, get yourself a good reusable bottle, ditch the clamshells for your to-go lunch, and stand up against single-use straws because you don't need them. It's not hard. You can do this. You can find more at hydroflask.com or you can follow along at Hydroflask. Um, and be sure to stick around at the end of the show because we want to hear what your favorite tip is for going plastic-free, and Hydroflask wants to hear your ideas too. Send it our way via a voice memo to oneocean at wcellpure.org. Again, it's oneocean at wcellpure.org. Send us a voice memo with your favorite most creative tip for how you go plastic-free, and maybe we'll feature it in a future episode. Of course, thank you, our listeners, for listening. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor. Throw us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, if you've got feedback or ideas, send it our way. Uh, just shoot us an email or find us online at WSelfPure or at WSelfPure.org. And uh, that's all I got for this week. All right, here's a plastic-free tip from our friend, Selena. Thanks. Hi, Reese. Uh, this is Selena here, uh, dive instructor, uh, currently living in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Uh, very lucky to be here, surrounded by the ocean and the sun and just... Uh, happy healthy vibes um hope everyone's doing okay my plastic free july tip uh i wanted to share with you was just that choice of when you go into the supermarket maybe choosing that glass jar instead of plastic uh for example switching from a a plastic container with peanut butter um and just picking up that glass one instead Hope everyone's happy and healthy and safe. And I love the podcast. It inspires me weekly, daily, uh, by the minute. And I love sharing it with my friends and talking about all the changes that we can make in our everyday lives uh, to support this cause. Thanks.